Hi, my name is Jackie. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 8. I play hard because that's how I do everything. I always push myself to be the best that I can be. Type 1 diabetes does not stop me from doing the things that I like to do. Hello and welcome to Teen 1D, the podcast for teenagers and young adults living with type 1 diabetes. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medicine advice or treatment. My guest for you today is Professor Matthew Weber. Matthew Weber is an associate professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Notre Dame. He graduated from the University of Notre Dame with a Bachelor in Science in Chemical Engineering, earned both a Master of Science PhD in Biomedical Engineering from Northwestern University, and completed an NIH and RSA postdoctoral fellowship at the Koch Institute at MIT before returning to the University of Notre Dame to start his independent research group. Hi, Professor Weber. Welcome to the Teen 1D podcast. Most of my listeners are teenagers and young adults who have type 1 diabetes. Many of them are thinking about their next steps, including courses in high school, majors of fields they'd like to study in college, and graduate school and career opportunities. So to begin, can you share with us where you're from and how you ended up choosing to attend the University of Notre Dame for your undergrad degree? Yeah, sure. Happy to be here um, and enjoy talking to your audience a little bit about our research. So uh, I am originally from Salt Lake City, Utah, and at, at some point decided I wanted to leave Utah and try, you know, going to, to college outside of the state. And so applied to a few places and ended up at the University of Notre Dame. When did you know that you wanted to study chemical engineering? Uh, so I, I came into undergraduate as a biochemistry major with the idea that I wanted to go to medical school. And at some point, uh, pretty quickly thereafter, realized that I was didn't want to do school anymore. That I was kind of done with school. You know, had a lot of student loans, had other sorts of things, and thought it was you know would be a good idea to kind of get a major that I thought I could really get you know a good job with straight out of undergraduate. Of course, plans later changed. I ended up going to graduate school, and then beyond that, did, did a postdoctoral fellowship. And so, though I thought originally, you know, I'd switch to chemical engineering so I get a job straight out of undergrad, it took me about nine years to really get my first job after finishing my degree. So. Uh, things definitely changed a bit. but So what is it about teaching that made you want to become a college professor? So actually, I, I wasn't necessarily initially drawn to the idea of the teaching portion of the job. Uh, I was really passionate about uh, launching my own research group. And teaching was something originally that I kind of thought of. This kind of comes along with the kind of cost of kind of the cost of having to have having your own research group and running a research group in a university setting, which was the part of the job that I was most passionate about initially. And then the funny thing is, like coming here um, and beginning teaching, I uh, really kind of found that I enjoyed it a lot, and so that was sort of a, a happy surprise, right? It was the part of the job that I wasn't so sure about initially, and it's the part of the job that actually I really get kind of energized and excited about now for sure, because it's just it's, you know it's a lot of fun to work with students. I'm very fortunate to to enjoy teaching a lot more than I thought I might. Yeah. How did you become involved in research involving type 1 diabetes? So I did my PhD at Northwestern, and I was developing new materials and therapeutic devices for cardiovascular disease. I uh, was interested, like I said, in going to do a postdoctoral fellowship and uh, wanted to work in the lab of Bob Langer at MIT. And part of the reason I wanted to work for Bob is he'd been very prolific in terms of uh, academic to translational industrial kind of applications of his of his research. And so Bob is 
one of, if not the most prolific academic inventors in the history of the world. Uh, he started, you know, on, on the order of about 40 successful companies, had, you know, thousands of patents, you know, many, many of which have been have been licensed and turned into products. Uh, his, his recent claim to fame is he's one of the, the founders of Moderna, which, of course, we're all now very thankful for, for the, for the COVID vaccines. And so I wanted to go to MIT to work with Bob. At the time when I was, when I was uh, going there, I was, I was, um, Presented with the option of, of working with Bob and another faculty member at MIT, uh, Dan Anderson, on a project they'd recently gotten funded to do glucose-responsive insulin uh, therapeutics. And so up until that point in my life, I'd never really thought about research in, in the area of diabetes, but it seemed like a good opportunity to get to go there and, and specifically to go and work uh, in, in the Langer lab and work with, with Bob and Dan and try to develop some new, uh, some new technologies. And so uh, it wasn't like I had some sort of personal narrative that called me into the diabetes diabetes space. I don't, I didn't really know anybody close to me with type one diabetes growing up or anything like that. Um, it was more just an opportunity to go and do research at a place that I wanted to go work with a mentor that I wanted to go work for. And this was sort of what was on offer. And so I accepted it. So because you didn't know anyone, how did you and your team envision this creative use of glucagon? When you were first discussing the hydrodils, did you realize that these might save lives and allow the parents of people with type one to sleep at night? Or had this not even occurred to you? Um, we definitely had some thoughts about it. And so like I said, I spent, you know, four and a half years or so at MIT working in the area of glucose responsive insulin. And so I knew sort of that side of things, how you could make materials or modified insulins or things that would be responsive to high glucose and, and respond in order to increase the activity of the insulin or make insulin available. And so then when we were, we, when I was coming here, you know, I started thinking about maybe reverse engineering a lot of those systems and making those systems respond to low glucose instead. And so um, kind of getting thinking about glucagon began in a few places, one of which was uh, discussions with uh, one of the uh, agencies that presently funds some of my research and learning about their evolving interest in glucose responsive glucagon. But getting a little bit more into it was, you know, I had dinner uh, one night with a faculty member who was visiting Notre Dame to give a seminar. And she had a, a type 1 diabetic child at that point, probably aged about 11 or 12. And she was telling me about how hard evenings were for her and the nights were for her and her husband where, you know, they hadn't slept at the same time in like three years since her daughter's diagnosis. You know, one was they were sleeping in shifts, you know, uh, one one at a time and the other one was kind of up and, and watching and making sure that the, the daughter didn't have any sudden lows. And so I was kind of thinking about this and, and could we could we develop technologies that might prevent some of these sudden drops in, in blood glucose from happening overnight using some of what we knew about making glucose responsive insulin and just kind of changing the paradigm a little bit. So certainly it was something we knew what we were going for going in. We knew the type of impact it might have. Uh, the first grant I wrote on this idea, I spoke about the health complications of parents who have to care for young children, the increased risks of, of depression and um, cardiovascular disease. And there's the rates of, of divorce and things like this in, in parents with, with young diabetic children are higher. And there's a lot of stress that it puts on the family. It puts people under a lot of physical, a lot of uh, mental, a lot of emotional uh, stress. And so these were things that I'd been reading a lot about, but this sort of was nucleated by this conversation with a colleague who was going through this at the time. And just for our audience who may not know exactly what the hydrogel does, could you provide an explanation on that? Yeah. So I think 
So we have a few different flavors of this. So I think uh, what you're speaking about now is is we had a recent paper that comes out that that, that just came out that is on a a gel material. So you could think about this as you know like like Jello, right? Uh, has that sort of consistency. But if you look in a zoom in really close, these are these are nanoscale fibers that make sort of a basket or a mesh type structure, right? And so what this is able to do is within those, that sort of basket or that mesh, we can hold glucagon and we make the material such that if there is not very much glucose around, that mesh dissolves to release the the entrapped glucagon that's kind of stuck in the in the net or the mesh-like structure. And so the the general idea with the material is it's it's very um, easy to push through a syringe. So you could imagine sort of a gel type material that would be in say a pen injector, for instance, you would you would inject this uh, the way you would inject insulin or some other therapeutic. And the gel would sort of hold glucagon in place, provided blood glucose was at a normal or high level. But if it got low, uh, the gel would dissolve and in doing so release uh, glucagon that would be encapsulated within. So a couple of years ago, I would have been going into my freshman year of high school. I was away at a diabetes camp and I had a seizure in the middle of the night while I was there. And if I had taken the hydrogel before bed, uh, the seizure was because my blood sugar was low. Would it have been possible to prevent that? Or is that something that has yet to be tested? So we haven't done, um, so we've done an animal model kind of modeling the condition you speak of. Um, and so that data was published in our recent publication as well. Um, these are in mice. And so I'd caution you just to, to, to know that, you know, this is things that are still a ways off. And we realize that our, our first technology in this area is imperfect in a lot of ways. And we have new iterations of this technology where we're working on trying to improve things. But the general idea would be, yeah, you know, you could have a material that, you know, before bed that night, before you'd had this seizure at your at your summer camp, um, you could have had an injection of this that would have had glucagon ready for you in the event that you did have a low episode. That would be the idea. Now, is our current technology going to be the winner in that regard? Uh, you know, is this going to be the thing that people are injecting, you know, 10, 15 years down the road? I don't think so. I think that, that, we, have, that we have challenges with this current technology one of which is, you know, it's a little bit too slow to react. It leaks a little bit too much when you don't need glucagon. There's some things that we'd like to fix, but the general idea is is, is that, yes, that we would have, you know, that kind of technology. And so in the um, the paper, we'd done an animal model modeling that exact scenario where we had diabetic mice and we'd given them a long-acting uh, Detamir, uh, which is, a, you know, kind of a basal insulin to keep them sort of on a normal uh, glucose level. And then we gave them the gel sometime following that. And so they had this gel under their skin. And then a couple hours after we'd given them the gel, we gave them an insulin overdose. And so we gave them a, a shot of insulin to basically overdose them on insulin. And we monitored the extent to which their blood glucose dropped was one of the things we monitored and then how fast it bounced back. And so the mice that have been treated before overdose, so you know, two hours before they were even overdosed with insulin with our gel, didn't get as hypoglycemic. They bounced back quicker and um, wasn't a, wasn't necessarily a, a primary endpoint of the study. But it just so happens that you know, in the control groups, a couple of mice died. In our treatment groups, none of the mice died, and so they didn't get hypo enough to actually have a lethal response. And so that was that was encouraging. Um, but like I said, we know this technology isn't perfect yet, and so we're thinking about ways to make it better. For sure. I know that you are still in the early stages of development of the hydrogels, but how much time passes between the release of the hydrogel into your system and the release of the glucagon afterwards? 
So it's pretty fast acting, I think. Um, glucagon is uh, a very fast acting therapeutic molecule. It typically, you know, if you just inject glucagon, for instance, your blood, you could expect your blood glucose to, to spike up within about 10 to 15 minutes. And then, you know, 30 or 40 minutes later, it's kind of already coming back down. And so it's a pretty fast acting molecule. And so the limiting step is really the material doing the transformation from, you know, encased to open. And so I think um, once it does that, once the glucagon is out and hitting circulation, it acts pretty quick. I was just curious about that part. Is, yeah, do you know no if problem. it's any faster than the glucagon shot or if there's any time difference there? Uh, it, it's probably slower only because the material is in the way. Okay. Versus the glucagon shot, I mean, it's ready to go, right? You, you've suspended yeah. it, it's ready to go. You can get the emergency shot. Uh, our technology for now is slower, but the good news would be that it'd be more autonomous, right? So you don't need to give yourself a shot or have someone there to be able to give you a shot if you needed it. It would be ready to go for you and kind of uh, acting without your, you know, kind of immediate involvement. So another question that I have is what happens to the hydrogel and the glucagon on a night where the glucagon is unnecessary? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's something we've gotten a lot of, uh, a lot of questions about. The truth is that it's going to just slowly release glucagon over time, over a period of probably a few days, um, if it didn't ever have like the, the low glucose event to really trigger a burst. And so it's going to slowly release glucagon over a few days. The material is going to be slowly degraded and cleared over days to about a week. We can't find these gels a week after we inject them. And so if they go somewhere, uh, they probably are just slowly kind of falling apart and degrading. And so you would have a little bit of glucagon around at all times uh, that, that might be slowly re releasing from the gel. I think the good news is that doesn't seem to be too much of a problem. So it doesn't seem like there's a big problem associated with too much glucagon around. Now, glucagon is a molecule that, that our bodies see all the time, even in, in, even in a type one state, though glucagon signaling is a little dysfunctional, it's still, you know, something that's around all the time in, in different levels. And so a little bit more or less probably isn't a huge issue. Okay. And then is the glucagon dosage in the hydrogel similar to that of the nose spray and the emergency kit, or is there a different amount in the hydrogel? So I think that's something we don't know what it would look like in the human form. If you took a if you took the dose we give mice and you you multiplied by the difference in size between a mouse and a human, it's probably like you know a, probably a hundred to a thousand times more. I haven't I don't remember the exact math, but that's just because we can only we can only put so little in a gel and have it stay in. Uh, and so the mice get a kind of a supercharged dose of it. But that's something that could be tunable. Uh, you know the other challenge is you know you wouldn't want to inject something more than about you know a couple hundred microliters in, in a human, and it's nearly impossible to inject less than about 50 microliters in a mouse just because syringes are only so small. And so you can't really scale all these things precisely between between mouse and human, but it'd be on the order similar. I think um, one of the things we're encouraged by is there's some clinical data out there of microdosing of, of glucagon. And so you can find examples where, you know, you get a lot of the same effect with about one-tenth of the dose in one of those emergency kits. So it doesn't seem like you need so I think those emergency kits have one milligram of glucagon in them, and they have studies where people get 0.1 milligrams, and they get most of the same effect. And so I think there's a reasonable window to play with. Um, and certainly we could overshoot that and give two or three milligrams, and it probably wouldn't be too much of a problem either. Yeah. Also, while doing research for this interview, um, I read that your research project is funded by both the ADA and JDRF. So to receive funding for that, how did you go about that? 
Yeah, so I should mention it's funded also by, um, and one of the key players in this is uh, the Helmsley Charitable Trust as well. And so the three of them fund uh, our research. And so, I mean, this gets a little bit to my life and my job and what I do. And so um, I run a research group at Notre Dame, and my research group right now is 10 PhD students, and then four people with PhDs who are doing a postdoctoral fellowship with me. So those 14 people work for me full time, and I pay their salaries. I pay for all of their research expenses, all of their consumables, their chemicals, their reagents. We pay for all the mice. We do all that. Right. And so the bills add up, you know, I mean, it, it adds up to, you know, on the order of a million dollars or so a year, plus or minus a little bit to run a team that size. And so the way we do that is we write grants to funding agencies and foundations. And so I write, or up until recently was writing a lot of external grants. And so the way this would work for, for the diabetes work is I would propose an idea to one of those funding bodies you mentioned, JDRF or ADA or Helmsley. I'd propose an idea to them and then they would review it and they would see how this idea slotted within their priorities for what they want to work on, how it aligns with their budget, right? So they have a fixed, you know, and finite and unfortunately not large enough budget in a lot of cases. And so they have to make hard choices over what they fund and what they don't fund. And so you'll find that a lot of these grants have, you know, 10% success rate, 15% success rate or worse. So what that means for my end is you have to write a lot of proposals, you have to make a lot of connections, you have to build a lot of network. And, uh, and you know, what it means for people like JDRF and ADA and some of them that depend on donors, you know, they're out there trying to raise money uh, from donations and from, from sponsorships in order to be able to fund as much research as they can. Yeah, I definitely not heard about it from that angle before. I think that's very interesting. So along the same lines, what is it like to be an associate professor at the same school where you attended college? Yeah, it's, it's been interesting. You know, I can't say, you know, I left Notre Dame in 2006 when I finished my bachelor's degree. And I was gone for 10 years, as I mentioned. I went to Northwestern and then to MIT. And then I was recruited back in large part because they built this brand new building that is virtually behind me. And, you know, there were there was all these new resources available for the, the brand of research that I like to do. And so I was recruited back. And I, w- I can't say when I left in 2006 that I said to myself, oh, I'd do anything to come back to Notre Dame. It was exactly the opposite. You know, I, in my mind, I was thinking, oh, you know, I did Notre Dame. I was there. I finished that. And then let's go see what else I can do. Uh, and so I was a little bit surprised by um, how much had changed when I came back to interview here in, in 2016, you know, in 10 years, all the new facilities, all the new resources and everything. And so uh, that was really kind of a pleasant surprise for me was, you know, all the great things that had been built in that 10 years that I was gone. And so um so it was it was kind of not something I ever planned on, but it worked out pretty well. And it's been it's been great. I think uh, I think I'm able to interact with especially the undergraduates in a way that a lot of my colleagues aren't just because I was them. You know, I was you know, it was it was a long time ago now, but I was them at some point. I was living in the same dorms and taking the same classes and you know, in a lot of cases, I had the same faculty that they have teaching a lot of their courses. And so I, I think I'm able to relate to them in a way that uh, that, that might be uncommon for, for faculty. And so that's kind of interesting. Uh, and, you know, it's been it's been good. And, you know, I, I came in with big ideas and, and, and kind of a bold vision for something I wanted to build. And, you know, I'd be I, I think I'd be most proud to really kind of build that at the place that I, you know, like a lot. And so I could build something really big and bold and kind of transformational at Notre Dame. I think that'd be better than building it at, you know, pick your average flagship state school, you know, in the Midwest, right? I feel like I'd feel more, you know, I'd feel more proud. 
I would feel like I'd, I'd kind of accomplished more. And I feel like the university might appreciate me a bit more if I could really come and build something new and, and unique here. And so, yeah, so it's been good so far. Thank you. And do you have any advice for anyone looking to choose a major right now or any people who are interested in your fields of expertise in the sciences? Yeah. So I think, you know, I'm obviously biased. I think, you know, chemical engineering is the best major, you know, somebody can get if you're interested in science and math and these kinds of things, because you can do a lot. You can do all the bio stuff. You can do all the chemistry stuff. You can do, you know, practical applications of these things to make products and make uh, things that people can actually use. And so I'm pretty biased in that regard as far as like what I think is the best you know, major for, for an undergraduate to get. But, you know, apart from my own biases, I guess my advice would be, um, I think that, you know, people, you know, and maybe if you're in your age or your generation, you know, finishing high school, going to college, you know, and I was probably the same myself. There's a tendency to think uh, that that things that happen are overly consequential, right? That, that, you know, where you go to college is going to change the course of your life or what you study is going to change the course of your life. And I think that when you get older, you kind of realize that, you know, you, had a, you have a lot of freedom and you can try things and you can make mistakes. Right. You can decide you don't like something and you can change your mind and you can try something different. And you have a lot of freedom to do that at that age that you don't have later in life. You know, you get you get a little older and you start having people that depend on you and you start having, you know, financial commitments or you have things like families and mortgages and, you know, other sorts of things. And uh, and you don't have as much freedom to sort of try something new. And so my advice would be, you know, explore broadly, figure out what you're interested in um, and don't be afraid to try something new and don't be afraid to to not like it and change your mind or try something else, right? I think that you have a lot of freedom at, at, at your age to, to do things that, that certainly is enviable when you get when you get to a point where you you uh, you don't get to maybe just drop what you're doing and try something totally new, right? I don't think my wife would be, would be particularly pleased if I just told her I was quitting my job and, you know, going back to school to try something else. I think that would probably be a a long and hard conversation, right? And uh, that's freedom I, you know, I I had at some point in my life and, and don't anymore. And so I would I would embrace that, embrace the uncertainty of maybe not knowing what you want to do with your life, and use that as an opportunity to explore new things. Thank you so much for that, and thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, and I'm happy to be here. It's fantastic to meet you, and uh, really appreciate what you're doing. I think this is something I'm 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 passionate about. A few things. One of them is sort of scientific and public outreach. Um, one of them is education, um, particularly as it relates to diabetes and diabetes research. And so I do a lot of speaking and, and meetings and things like that with the JDRF and ADA and other sorts of people uh, that, that like have an interest in this stuff. And so this is right up my alley. This is perfect, you know, to be able to talk about science to an audience and then also, you know, speak about the things that I think are going to be, you know, exciting or helpful coming down, coming down the pipe for, for diabetes and uh, possibly, hopefully new therapeutics uh, in the in the not too distant future. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah. That's all for today. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, or just want to say hi, don't hesitate to reach out. You can email me at teen.teen1d at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at teen1d podcast with no spaces or capital letters. If you like my podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review as it really does help me out. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget to tune into next week's episode. Have a great week. Bye.